0: Good morning, it's good to see you. All packed in. More than one have said I brought the house down in the first two weeks, so... um, (laughs) I'm more convinced that it's my high-pitched voice, and you know what that does to avalanches? It kind of... But um, hopefully we will be back in the... Well, when we see it like this, eh? Um, We will ask the session about going back into the church. No, we, we probably will go back in. But it's good to see you all. Thank you for the different arrangements that have had to be made through getting uh, children to different parts of Belfast uh, this morning. Thank you very much for your patience with that. Um, As a result obviously the order of service will be nothing like probably what you see in front of you and uh, hopefully those who are (coughs) taking part will will know where they're coming in or whatever. We have moved this week, two weeks in and you told me that some of the roof was coming in Can I tell you two weeks in that you've got a very naive and old minister? I thought we'd be moved by Wednesday afternoon. (laughs) And I'd be out visiting by (laughs) 2.30. But apparently it's going to be Wednesday afternoon sometime in February before it all finishes. Um, No, we've moved in but there's boxes everywhere. And it's been quite a week. And internet doesn't come on to uh, Monday night. So those of you who have been trying to get me on the internet... Uh, That's why there's been no response. I'm sorry about that, but we will be back on. On the fits, I'll be a little bit late uh, this week. Um, The old age is that, really, 10 years ago I could have made that move, but I'm really exhausted uh, this week. However, there's better news in the congregation and we will lead into worship with that better news. Uh, The Pattersons, uh, not Sarah, Sandra and Glenn. (laughs) And... uh, Brent and Louise have had uh, babies this week on Wednesday and Friday, so we want to give thanks for uh, two additions to our family and uh, for their safe arrival. So before we go into worship, let us pray together. Our God, we thank you that you are God of all, that you are in everything and Lord of everything. And we thank you for life and the miracle of life. And we thank you for Zoe born on Tuesday. And we thank you uh, for Connor born on Friday. We thank you for two new additions to our family. We pray for their mother's father. Um, We pray for siblings. We pray that very quickly they will get into the new rhythm of another child in their family. And that very soon they will be with us here adding to the dynamic of what Fitzroy is about. We praise you God that you're with us in the midst of all the chaos that perhaps is around us today, that your spirit is the same, and that your spirit can move in our midst to meet the needs that we all have, very different needs this very morning, where we're sitting in this hall, the Holy Spirit can come and touch us, inspire us, challenge us. Yes, maybe at times rebuke us and correct us, but we thank you that you do it all through your love and through the love of Jesus. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Let's stand. And how great is our God Sing with me how great is our God And all will see how great, how great is our God i
2: Hi, I'm Chris Williamson. My wife Claire is over here and our son Brennan is somewhere about. We welcome uh, anyone who's new or fairly new to the church who wants to make some new friends uh, to our home uh, at lunchtime. I've got some wonderful maps here to instruct those who don't quite know where Bonmore Road is. So please come and see me after the service.
0: Good morning. Um, We're very excited to see so many new faces in Fitzroy and there's a team in Fitzroy called the Fellowship Development Team and it's our privilege to try and help folks who are new to uh, our church family to get integrated to Get involved a wee bit more to both experience uh, family relationships and enjoy being here, but also in in hoping that you will also uh, find a place to serve within the the church congregation. So, uh, our leader is Philip McElroy, who's on the door this morning. Is Philip about? Uh, this is Philip, So, and there's John, John Trinder, and myself, Eileen McGoon, so feel free to come along and have a chat with us, meet us for coffee during the week, we're very accessible and we'll be around if you'd like to have a chat, thank you.
3: Um, I would just like to remind all of you who are involved with our youth work, any, well anywhere really from creche right through to Um, working with our students. Tomorrow night we're having the next phase of our uh, strategic review um, with Anne McMurray leading us in that and um, we're meeting for pizza at six and it should finish about a quarter to nine and it's an opportunity as well to meet Steve and if you have any questions he's ready to field those, I think.
4: (laughs) My announcement again is with regard to the uh, Kirk session and uh, the date of the meeting. It says, uh, members of session present, would you please note that it says on page 8 that the Kirk Session will be a meeting on the 4th of December. Now, again, for the second week in succession, I have to correct that. And there should be a one in front of the four. In fact, it should be the 14th of December, which is a Monday night. And uh, mea culpa. And... um, the only redeeming thing, if it happens next week, that'll be three weeks in a row, and I'll get a bonus point. <laughs> but I'm hoping that's not the case. So it's Monday the 14th of December, and we'll worry about the time later. It says 7, I don't know about that, but Monday the 14th of December.
5: Thank you very much. Good morning. This is a slightly impromptu announcement this morning, but um, I couldn't let this opportunity pass without bringing, bringing to you some um, stories of, of the weekend, really. We're all, we're all familiar with the adage, a time to laugh and a time to cry. But let me just take you for a moment, if I may, to South Belfast yesterday afternoon. Um, a beautifully appointed dwelling um, in Harperton Avenue was the, the setting for us uh, Maybe eight or ten uh, young and not so young men joined together with a good international smattering there as well. Indeed, we had friends from France who were there to join us, which was great. We had a number of, of people supporting the team in, in green or white, as it was yesterday. And then we had our South African contingent. <laughs> now, there's always one in every crowd, as you know, um, and it happened to be the South African element of the crowd yesterday. <laughs> um, and this, ver- you know, you're sitting there quite sedate and excited bells around, the, around, waiting for the kickoff. Whenever there's one in the crowd with not just his shirt, but the big van der Velt horn came out. <laughs> let, me explain, let me explain what it's like. It's sort of a bit like a clarinet, a larger version of a clarinet. And the resonance it gives is like a probably the wind passing from a herd of, of wild elephants as they roam about in, in South African Plain, just to give you the, the idea of it. So here was this individual feeling very, very confident at the kick-off yesterday mo- and making lots and lots of appropriate noise. And so it continued as South Africa moved into an early lead. And there is actually a reason why I'm telling this story in a moment. But <laughs> as, we, as we progressed through, the, through the, that day, the, the, the horn kept getting louder and louder as South Africa moved slightly further ahead. And what gave me great comfort was the, the fact that most of the crowd, a lot of elders actually were in the crowd, and I just thought I would let you know um, how well they behaved and controlled and control themselves in that difficult situation. I did see, however, in Gary Burnett's eyes, whenever our eyes met across the room at one stage, the same feeling as myself, that I would quite like to snap that horn in two and really put it maybe where the sun don't shine, as they say. Anyhow... As we progressed on, the the other elders in the room um, decided that silence, you know, they were appropriately silent, knowing that the worm would turn at some stage. And sure enough, the worm did turn. But more more appropriately, actually, um, what gave me really great comfort was the fact of their scriptural knowledge. Because as we came towards the end of the game, I started with a time to laugh and a time to cry. There is a lesser known version on that, which is hidden away in the scripture somewhere. It says, a time to be silent in victory and a time to gloat, a time to be silent in defeat and a time to gloat in victory. Um, this, I may say, is the time to gloat. For those of you, for those of you who don't know um, Brent, who is sitting in the, uh, part of the congregation today, I would, just, I would just ask you to please feel free at the end to take your time to gloat and to, to comfort him in true Christian fashion. Okay? Thank you very much.
3: Okay, that's kind of hard to follow, but I'll do my best. Um, I've been asked to speak to you this morning as part of the Fitzroy Profile Series, and for those who don't know um, about that, it's an opportunity for members of the congregation to find out about another member of the congregation, and this morning you're going to find out about me. Um, Tom Trinder, or John Trinder, sorry, who organises it, has asked me to talk to you about my passions. I think it's a bit early in the day for that, but I'm (laughs) going to do my best. So number one, I'm sure I'm not the only person in this room who happens to have this. I can see some responses. Pride and Prejudice. The uh, the best of the period drama selection, I think we can all agree, yes. So I'm really a period drama fan. If any of the rest of you are the same, come and talk to me afterwards, and we can discuss our favourite scenes from all the various movies that are there. Okay, second. Um, Okay, what have we here? We have Africa. Yes, now this is my very high tech visual aid here. Okay, anybody know which country? Kenya, Kenya, yes. Uh, I spent about six years working in Kenya Uh, teaching in a Bible college there and uh, I really enjoyed it so much and I have to tell you on dark cold damp November days the thought of African sunshine is very appealing Um, but that was a very important and significant time in my life I think working there and I could again tell you lots of stories about that but I don't have time this morning unfortunately and now third but by no means least. Okay, what have we here? We've got writing on a piece of paper, definitely. Anyone, anybody want to hazard a guess? Okay, it's Greek. <laughs> um, I've always kind of been keen on Greek. (laughs) It's maybe slightly weird, but there you go. Anyway, I've always been keen on Greek. Um, Normally, I teach New Testament and Greek at Belfast Bible College. At this point, I'm on a kind of career break trying to finish my PhD. And what I'm looking at for that is um, letters in the ancient world and how they compare with Paul's letters. Uh, And this is one of the letters that I'm looking at. It's um, actually an inscription that has been found inscribed in stone in a place called Berea, which is one of the places Paul visits in Acts. Um, So I'm currently working on that at the moment. When you start to read these letters, they give fascinating insights into the ancient world. And one of the very interesting things about that is how much it is like our world and not like our world. So, for example, there's a letter about getting the mouse catchers in quickly before all the pregnant mice start to have lots of baby mice. You have to get your mouse catchers in quickly. There are letters about whether you can cut down a protected species of tree. Um, Those things were going on in the Roman world. Um, Then there's a letter from a doctor who was sent round to examine a civil servant who was out on sick leave. just to check. Uh, There's other from forensic scientists who were sent in to examine the murder scene, sending back a report on whether the person was really dead and how it happened. So there's lots in that which I find very interesting. Um, I could tell you lots about it, but I don't have time now. And sometimes, even more exciting, you find particular things that affect how you might understand a passage of the New Testament. Um, But I don't have time to talk about that now, so I'm going to stop at this point. Thank you.
2: And finally, uh, Christmas. Uh, Like me, you're probably trying to avoid it at the moment. But the last Sunday before Christmas, the 20th, in the evening, we'll be having a very special service with uh, readings and music, a meditative evening. We do need a choir. We have a choir, but um, we were very pleased to have lots more people in the choir for Steve's installation. I can see some of our new friends from Derryvulgie and wondering if they're free. Um, we'll keep in touch. But there were a number of you who joined us, younger people as well, and. This is an invitation to come and come and join in with us. There will be three practices on Sundays, starting next week at 5 o'clock, uh, so you'd be most welcome to join us. Let's just pray for all the things we've been hearing about. Father, we just thank you for the extraordinary business of being part of your family, a community of forgiven people. We thank you for each other. And we thank you for these opportunities to get to know more people, to grow closer together. We pray for the lunch today, and we pray for it especially, Lord, uh, that it'll be a place of meeting and welcome, a place of connection, a place where there's a promise of being at home. So we give each one of us into your hands and pray that these connections will grow and deepen in this coming week. In Jesus' name. Amen.
6: The reading this morning is taken from First Colossians um, chapter one, verses fifteen to twenty three. The supremacy of Christ. But now he, can, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. We are racing on
0: because the children um, are not used to a one and a half hour Sunday school Bible class etc etc so um, I'll probably uh, <coughs> keep this short as well um, which is no harm on a week that we've been moving house because uh, luckily the Fitzroy room's not quite ready and uh, as a result of that there's about 120 boxes that should be in the study that's not quite ready um, to be unpacked. Of which the books for this morning's sermon have been since Wednesday afternoon. So I've got a friend to sort of courier me up at least one book. And I found, uh, he had a Bible that I'd let, loaned him a few weeks ago. And that took me out of the children's Bible of Caitlin's that I was using. <laughs> and you can understand where we are. But <whistles> now That's what causes that stuff to come off through. <laughs> um, but before we go anywhere in that can I thank you so much for your kindness this week. Uh, Brent and Louise had a baby on Tuesday and on Wednesday morning we had a card through our door to welcome us into their new house. So I'm trying to work out did they take it in the way to give birth or did Louise leave shortly after the birth to post it or did Brent post it. Um, but we've had an enormous amount of um, food and biscuits and all kinds of things that you've given us, flowers and cards, and we really are thankful. And uh, we love the house, and it's going to be great. It's just going to take a while before we stop living in cardboard boxes. Anyway, let's pray before we come to maybe a shortened version of this particular sermon. Lord, we thank you for the Jesus that Caroline has been reading about in Colossians And we thank you that he is in everything and holds everything together. And we pray that this morning we might um, get a a new glimpse of his majesty and of his far-reaching lordship and of how we need to follow him into the nooks and crannies of our society. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Janice, uh, my wife... um, grew up in a missionary family. They didn't go as missionaries. They were directors of Africa Evangelical Fellowship. And as a result of that, uh, when I started coming around the house, I would meet missionary after missionary. And uh, one of the missionaries that I met who had most impact on me was a guy called Roy Comrie, who was uh, from Zimbabwe, was uh, a fine tennis player. In fact, I think, felt that he could have played at Wimbledon, but had that unfortunate meeting with Jesus, which uh, changed the direction of his life. Not that you can't be a Christian and play at Wimbledon, but for Roy, um, that wasn't the way his life went. Instead, he came back to Zimbabwe as a missionary, and uh, he tells all kinds of incredible stories if you get him around a, a, a fire um, in the late evening about some of his stories in Africa. But one of the ones he told me that, that struck a real chord with me was he was, it was the, the last days, maybe just after, in fact, the Rhodesian Civil War, and he was driving back to Harare, and uh, he said he, he picked up a hitchhiker. Now, I always th- find that courageous. Any time of day, or any time of year, or in any country, picking up a hitchhiker—you don't know who this person is. He's getting into your car. What could he be like? You would have thought Roy would have had more of a clue because I think it was an AK-47 the guy was holding. And when uh, when Roy let him into the car, he put it between his knees and it just sat there. And uh, he said the guy didn't speak for a few miles. He just kept looking around the car, but he saw a Bible in the back of the car. And he started giving off about uh, this Christian God that uh, people believed in. Uh, In his own language, obviously, not sure that Roy spoke that language. In fact, probably pretty sure Roy didn't. But after a little bit of time over this, Roy finally spoke to him in his language and that shocked him a bit. And he went on about how he was an atheist and how there was no God and he'd been to Russia. He'd proved to him there was no God. There's how you find out. Uh, go to Russia. Um, so anyway, they're driving along and um, Roy says that it became very clear very quickly that this was the most violent man that he ever had met. And he said he'd, he realised that he started to talk to him about the war and he started to talk to him about what he'd seen in the war. And uh, the man kept saying, I haven't slept in weeks and months. And started to share with Roy some of the scenes of murder of children and all kinds of things that he'd seen and maybe even perpetrated in this war. He says, I haven't slept in weeks and months. And Roy said, this was the most violent man I'd ever met. So I took him to the most violent place there ever was. And he took him to the cross. He told him about Jesus. And he told him about what happened to Jesus on those hours leading up to the cross. And he said by the time they got to Harare, the guy wouldn't let Roy let him out of the car. Now he's got that gun between his knees, so you know, if you want to stay on a while, feel free. He said he wouldn't let me let him out of the car until I didn't him to this Jesus And he said, we arranged to meet about a week later. And he said, I wasn't sure whether he'd come back or what would happen. But he said, a week later in the same spot, Roy got out of the car. And this guy's running down the road towards him saying, Baba, which is the word for friend. Baba, Baba Comrie, I'm sleeping now. I'm sleeping now. The impact of Jesus and the cross on our personal lives can change everything. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. We believe that this Jesus can change our lives deeply and personally. He can be and is a personal Jesus. However, perhaps we have so personalized him that he's become our own designer, Jesus. For me and me alone. And we've lost some of the impact of who he really is. It's almost like we've domesticated him and made him this nice, dare I say it, BT9, middle-class Jesus, who walked around with short back and sides, always well-dressed, well, unless he went to Fitzroy, and uh, just a nice, nice man. We've domesticated him. And yet if we read or we listen to what Caroline read to us today, we see that this is not a domesticated Jesus and not a personal Jesus only. He's a Jesus who is overall. If we look through that passage, it's been read and count the number of times it says all or everything. We discover in this passage in Colossians that this Jesus is not just the most important person in my personal life. He's not just the most important person in the church's life. This is the most important person in the history of the universe. He holds the universe in place. Everything is made by him and through him. This Jesus is Lord over all. There's a new commentary on Colossians. I was talking to Gary about it just last week. He asked me if I'd read it, and needless to say, here it comes the third week in. It's a, a, a commentary, if you could call it that in Colossians, called Colossians Remixed. It's by Brian Walsh and his wife, Sylvia Kiesmat. Um, sometimes it's good to take. His name, and for me I've confused this Kismat name for a long time, but Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmat, um have written this book on Colossians. And how they see it is that it's a subversive piece of poetry by Paul in the prophetic sense to challenge the empire of the day that it's written in. Karen scared me with her knowledge of Greek and the other letters that are going on around the place. And um, uh, I'm only going on uh, Keyes, Matt and Walsh here, so uh, I'll trust in their intelligence in this one. But what they would say is that these are not, it probably was an early church hymn, it might have been an early church hymn. But what Keyes, Matt and Walsh are saying is, this is a poem to challenge the empire of the day that these believers were living in. Because in the world that they lived in, Caesar was everything that they tell us Jesus is in this passage. Caesar would have been seen as the saviour of the world who ended all wars and brought stability to the world. Uh, He would have been seen as the one who restored order equal to the beginning of all things. These would have been phrases that would have been used about Caesar. And when the believers were walking around the empire, they would constantly have been confronted by images of Caesar. There would have been statues. There would have been inscriptions and walls. He was on their very coins. And the lordship of them as individual civilians, citizens of that time, would have been to give Caesar their lordship. To serve Caesar. Caesar was to be their god. And what Walsh and Kismat say that Paul was doing in this particular part of Colossians was to give us a reimagining of another way to live, of another Lord, of another God. Because what they say is that whoever is the dominant emperor in our empire captures (coughs) our imaginations and stops us from creatively changing the way it is into how it can be. And that's what Caesar would have done. Try to capture the imagination of the citizens so as they would give total allegiance to him and therefore nothing would come that would challenge the status quo, that would change the way it always was and the way it always had to be. Jesus, of course, came to change everything. So what Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to create within the believers of his day a reimagining. To challenge the images that are bombarding them With the other image. Of he who really is saviour. And lord of all. The question then. Needs to be asked I guess. What about our. Empire. Who runs our empire. Who captures the imagination. Of those of us who live. At the start of the 21st century. When I was doing my masters. I looked at music. And how music can socially transform. And um. Looking at imagination quite a bit of the time in that. And as a result of that. I began to see that the, the songs that seemed to be most potent for change. Were written by those who were oppressed. If we want to look back to the civil rights movement who took the songs that were written in the plantations of the 19th century southern states of America by these slaves who were out in their fields trying to carry theology and trying to carry story and trying to carry some sense of alternative imaginings, actually, in the songs that they sang in the fields. We need to ask ourselves, why did songs that were written in fields last for 200 years so that not only did the civil rights movement use it. But even Bruce Springsteen a couple of years ago took these same songs out to tour them around the world. And started to apply them to some of the issues in North America that he felt needed dealt with. You find that songs that are rich and potent change. Come out of places where there's an awful lot of oppression. South Africa. Some amazing songs coming out of there. A wonderful movie called *Amandla* that you want to see that talks about how the songs were the engine room of the change to get rid of apartheid and to keep uh, that community who were oppressed for so long alive with other imagination and alternative imagination and other imaginings. And therefore, you look at uh, the axe Factor <coughs> and you wonder why none of them blesses. We'll be here after March. It's a particularly bad year, it's got to be said. (laughs) Particularly bad year. But you wonder why in the white pop charts of the West who know no oppression and live in our liberty and our freedom are not writing songs of prophetic imagination. We don't think we need to because we're free and there's nothing oppressing us. Oh, really? Really? What Kiesma and Walsh talk about, well let me quote, the average North American, and I think we can not call ourselves that, if you're North American, no offence, um, but we're certainly Western and can see ourselves in that same uh, description. The average North American is confronted every day by somewhere between five and 12,000 corporate images, all geared to shaping a consumer imagination. We are under deep oppression. Images that capture our imagination as to how it's different, who take over our allegiances and give us our identity. And they're so subtle that we don't even see them. When we need consolation, do we go to the nearest church to pray or do we go shopping? When we're looking for a little lift, where do we go? What are the things that drive the society that we live in? Is it serving other people and doing a good job? Or is it getting the job done and the money in our pockets and getting out of there that seems to have been done in a few little situations in the rebuilding of the months? Where is the care taken over any Do you think that anybody, and sorry for those who are businessmen among us, but do you think that very many of us are sitting in offices thinking, how can we serve our community? And how can we serve our community at the least cost to our community so that we will not make all the profits that our stockholders need? Where's that happening? Or where are the meetings happening where people are saying, right, how can we maximize our profit for the next year? What is driving The world around us. (coughs) What is driving the world around us? It's not the Jesus who Roy Comrie's mate met on the way to Harare. It's not the Jesus of Colossians chapter 1. It's not the Jesus who came so that we might serve one another and bring shalom and harmony in the kingdom of God. We are under the tyrannical rule of a consumerist empire. And we don't even think that Jesus has got anything to do with that as long as we feel that we're saved and that we're okay. We can spend what we like and do what we like. But we are those called to be followers of Jesus. We are called to bring this subversive change of who's Lord all, of, all around us. We are called to bash into the relentlessness As one of my students talked about about consumerism. We were on a township for a couple of weeks. It was the day before we went home. And I said to my students. Are you looking forward to getting home? And they said no we're not. And I said what are you least looking forward to going home to? And they said the relentlessness. Of the consumerism. Of our society. 20 year olds. Who realise that when they come out of a place. Where there's nothing. And go back to a place where there's everything. Everything. That sometimes freedom is not where there's everything. That there might be more freedom where there's nothing. That blessed are the poor might actually make sense at some level. Now don't get me wrong. I don't think we should be poor. I don't think anybody should be poor. Because there's a poverty that the prophets raged against. But Jesus also talked about a blessedness of poverty. And I, one of my students said to me one night, You know, Steve... It's not their poverty that makes them happy, it's their lack of wealth. And I went, That's great, let me write that down. Who said that? He said, You said it last night in the talk. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's all right. It's not their poverty that makes them happy, it's their lack of wealth. And I think there's some truth in that. And our wealth, does it make us happy? Makes us consumers. Means that we see the empire. 12,000 times a day? And it means that Paul's saying, let's bring some of this subversive poetry into play that sees a Jesus that's much more than our personal savior, but a Jesus who is Lord over everything, which of course brings us in to that Calvinist theology that we should all be immersed in as Presbyterians. The idea that there's not one inch of the entire universe Over which Jesus does not claim lordship. Not one inch of the entire universe. Now that's Calvin through Abraham Kuyper. Who was uh, a Dutch theologian, prime minister and journalist. Of the the 19th century. But it's true. We believe that there's not one inch of the entire universe. Over which Jesus doesn't claim to be lord. Personal Jesus, yes. But a personal Jesus so that we can be public. Jesus. People who say, My faith's a personal thing. Don't like to do anything about it outside my own life. I'm not sure we get that choice. When Jesus came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because God so loved the world, because Romans tells us even the earth is yearning for this day of ultimate salvation. We are called to see this Jesus as Lord over all and to infiltrate every aspect of our society to bring that lordship. This series has talked about how grace is more than a ticket to heaven. We've shriveled it up to just our ticket in. How the Bible is shriveled into something we just read for a quiet time. And we need to make sure we don't shrivel Jesus into some little... When I was in the Philippines and you were driving around in their jeepneys, there was always these little images of somebody, mainly Jesus, in the front of the jeepney. And he can become a little sort of icon that you carry about in your pocket. No, not physical, not physical, but he's there in your mind. And it can shrink the potency of this Jesus who is Lord over everything. And we're back to us again. Fitzroy, what does it mean for him to be Lord over the Holy Lands? What does it mean for him to be Lord over the university? What does it mean for him to be Lord over the business sector heading down towards the city centre? And how do we pray? How do we minister? How do we reach out? How do we bring this lordship? As an imaginative alternative to the way it is out there. John Lennon said, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. And it is. They are. Imagine there's no heaven. That was easy. But Mr. Lennon, here's the difficult one. Imagine there is a heaven. And imagine that this Jesus that we've read about in Colossians 1 is Lord not only of heaven... of earth and the cosmos, imagine that reimagine that and then from that imagining it becomes incredibly difficult because what we pray so often and I was telling the kids in Botanic Primary on Friday morning that kingdom has to come on earth as it is in that heaven we've imagined so let's Exercise our imaginations. I realised this week that I really should have been exercising a few of my arm muscles and shoulder muscles and back muscles before this week. I am sore. And if you think this is a pose for the part of the sermon that we're in, it's not. I'm stuck. <laughs> As my dad says, who still goes to the gym twice a week at 75, ah. <sighs> Um, who ran the marathon at 50. (laughs) He says, if you don't use it, you lose it. Now, what about the imaginations that we are going to need if we're going to subvert the empire that we live in? Have we been imagining? Have we been exercising our imagining? Is there art everywhere in order to allow us to do that? Are we listening to the right songs, watching the right movies, seeing the right photographs and art? Because in doing all of that, it's like going to the gym almost. To go to a gallery or a concert or a movie or a play is like going to the gym to exercise the imaginations of our minds so that we can imagine heaven and bring that heaven to earth, God's will, here, as there. Jesus is not just my personal saviour, although you. God he is, he is the Lord of the universe and he calls me to reform, restore and redeem that universe for himself. Let's pray. Our God help us to imagine. Not imagine things that don't exist, but imagine the reality of what does exist. To imagine you, the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. Lord of everything. Longing to influence everything and calling us as your church to do it. Waken up our imaginings, Lord. Exercise them. And then give us the courage and the boldness to challenge the world order with the kingdom of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.